0: You know, one of the things that comes with growing older, at least that's what they tell me. I wouldn't know, of course, but one of the things they tell me about growing older is that as you get older, there's a sudden awakening to the shortness and the fragility of life. It's so fragile. It's so feeble. It comes, and before very long, it's gone. The Bible says it like this. He said it's like... People, as if people were like the grass in the fields, which today is growing, the next day is cut down and used as fuel in the oven and is burnt and that's it. It comes and it goes, goes. Or to use the words of Jesus, it's like flowers of the field, not there one day, next day the flowers open and we say how wonderful it all is, but the next day they're withered and they're gone. When you're young, you imagine that life goes on forever. At least, you probably wouldn't even think about it. It just is in your mind. It just goes on. That's life. You keep on, and you look forward to the next phase. You're getting a bit older and a bit older. You just think of life going on and on and on. And it comes a bit of a shock when you realize that, well, life doesn't just go on and on and on. It's not like that. In fact, life is short, and life is passing away. 1986. Bob Geldof wrote his autobiography thought it's a bit presumptuous writing it those years ago when he's not a very old man now But anyway, he wrote his autobiography in 1986 and he called it. Is that it? Is that it and then he talks about his childhood and at the end of talking about his childhood and what he went through He said is that it? And then he talked about his time with the Boomtown Rats and the singing of that and writing the songs and becoming very famous and making piles of money. And at the end of that, he said, but is that it? And then he talked about Live live Aid that he organized and put on. The world's biggest concert ever, with millions around the world participating. And at the end, he said, but is that it? Is that it? And uh, at each stage, that's the question. Is that it? Um, you set out on a project. Your project, my project. It may be just a normal, everyday project, not particularly ambitious or exciting, something that you're doing. You're going on holiday, for example. And you're all excited, and you look forward to going on holiday, and the time comes when you leave work, and you take a deep breath, and say, holiday. Two weeks pass, and you say, well, is that it? Is that it? Or it might be something like moving house, buying a new house. And you're excited about it and you think that this house is going to change your life. But you move in and after a few weeks you you say, well, is that it? Is that it? Or it might be getting a new car or changing your job or even something simple like going out for a meal with your friends and you look forward to it for a few days and it comes and it goes. Well, is that it? And uh, life seems to disappear so quickly. And you end up, if you're not very careful, chasing rainbows at least the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And uh, you wonder what's going to come next. BBC put together a little video about it. We'll watch it.
1: The top of an Olympic podium is, in many ways, the ultimate destination in sport. It's the dream of millions, the privilege of just a tiny few. But it begs a question. What is winning gold actually like? You imagine life is going to be changed,
2: uh, you're going to be hugely rich and famous and, you know, full stop. I always felt cheated. It just is. Of course it is. Everyone imagines that it is.
3: I didn't sleep for weeks. Weeks.
2: <laughs> and actually,
1: it isn't. Perhaps we do mythologize what it is to win gold. We often suppose that getting to the top of a podium is like a fairy tale, and that the champion's going to live happily ever after. But is human psychology quite so simple?
3: I remember being chauffeured back in the bus to the Athletes' Village from doing all my press conferences and sitting there thinking, what are you going to do now? (laughs) <laughs> what? You've done it. What are you going to do now? And, and that feeling alone made me really kind of... ..a bit depressed, actually.
2: Well, fantastic, we have won. But, like, OK, well, the whole world is moving on. There's another event coming and, OK, we have to go now. And, like, it was a sort of, you know, you make no plans after your
1: event finishes. For many sports people, winning gold is not just an occupational ambition, it's an all-encompassing motivation. Coaches demand nothing less. But if you've won a gold medal, if you've achieved your purpose, what next? Is it any wonder so many gold medal winners feel an overpowering sense of emptiness? Their entire life is wrapped up with getting this one thing, and they believe this is going to be the answer. Once I've got this one thing, I'll be satisfied. Uh, and I think they need to get there. For the lucky ones, they get there and find out that it isn't. And then they get looking in the, real, the right places to find satisfaction and, and happiness, um, because I don't think it's wrapped up in a gold medal. It doesn't mean that all other aspects of your life are now
3: set, and that you're never going to have another problem in life. It doesn't work that way. It's kind of odd for me, having lost my faith, to quote the Bible. But in Proverbs, it says, without a vision, the people perish. And I think if you don't have something to lead you on, then there's nowhere to go. The journey finishes, and that's why you feel empty.
2: Three hours after we'd raced, I ended up back in the Olympic Village, sat on the end of my bed with my Olympic gold medal in my hand, and thought, that's it, I've done it. And winning is undeniably and publicly a sort of highlight. It's as high as you can go in almost any Olympic sport, certainly our sport. Well, everything else is going to be down compared to that
1: a sense of anti-climax is not exclusive to sport of course winners of the national lottery have talked about extreme lows after the initial high and perhaps this isn't such a bad thing maybe a lull emotional or otherwise helps to set somebody up for the next challenge the next summit and maybe this explains the relentless ambition of so many great sports people that they go for their next gold medal so soon after winning the last one. I think if, if you were
2: euphoric forever having won, it'd be like only having filet mignon to eat. You know, like you pick your perfect meal, uh, but then actually it's a bit of a curse to have that every meal for the rest of your life. You know, you actually like the contrast.
3: There's not a set way to react emotionally to any victory or defeat. We all respond differently. If athletes were to think about forcing their emotions, i.e., I feel numb, I should feel euphoric, then that thought is the problem. Accept how you feel at that moment, because that's okay. If you've never achieved that great level of success, then how will you know how you feel? How will you know how you're meant to feel?
1: At one level, it is rather obvious that a gold medal is not a panacea for life itself. Just because an athlete is fantastic at sport doesn't mean they're gonna have all the answers for the challenges that lie beyond the field of play. I can't imagine and
3: never in my life that I won't have a, just a little bit of a smile and a good feeling when I think about that moment that I won Olympic gold medals. But does that make everything else in my life perfect? Absolutely not.
1: Many great sportsmen, many of the greatest of all, reflect with great pride on having ascended the top of an Olympic podium. But many others have expectations of a gold medal that simply cannot be met. If this wasn't the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow,
0: what is? BBC doesn't often put things together like that. Walter Lord once wrote a book. You won't know him but he wrote a book called a night to remember and it was actually the story of the Titanic and it was a particularly interesting record of the Titanic because he interviewed 60 of the survivors to put this book together you know the Titanic a third of a mile long the finest ship that had ever been built the biggest thing movable object that man had ever put together the most luxurious ship and it went down 14th of April 1912 and he wrote in his book this if this supreme achievement was so terribly fragile what about everything else if wealth meant so little on that cold April night did it mean so much the rest of the year people have never been sure of anything since or as Chris Boardman put it on that DVD. So many people chasing gold say, well, once I've got this one thing, this gold medal, I'll be satisfied. And the lucky ones go on to get there, as he put it, and find that it's not the answer and they start looking in the right places to find satisfaction because it's not wrapped up in a gold medal. So the ultimate question to ask is, what is the ultimate thing? What is the thing that we should seek? What is the single thing That makes sense of life or to put it in the words of Jonathan Edwards at the end of that DVD clip if this wasn't the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow what is is there anything is there something that will make sense of life for us and this is where the words of Jesus that we have read from the Bible come in in mark chapter 8 now before we actually just think about that just for a few minutes Um, There are two questions that we need to ask as a sort of preliminary background questions. After all, Jesus claims to be making sense of life. And the questions we need to ask, well, there are two. The first one is, why look here? Why not look anywhere else? What about all the other great philosophers, religious leaders, or whatever? Why not look at all the 1,001 other things that uh, men say are answers? And the answer to that particular question is to be found in the question itself. When we say, we're looking at life, what's at the end of the rainbow? um, Well, actually, you find that Jesus strides both this life and the ultimate. He is one who claims to stand at the bridge of life between this life and any other next life. And therefore, it makes sense to start by thinking about him because he actually is the only one who has claimed to be able to speak authoritatively of both this life and a next life. And so it makes sense to start looking there. Someone who is both man here on earth and beyond man, heaven itself. And Jesus is the only one who claimed that. And uh, when he claimed it, he made some particular statements we'll just glance at. Uh, But I said there were two questions to think about preliminary. That's the first one. The second one is, doesn't it make sense to look at all the philosophies of life? I I, I mean, why why choose this particular one? Well, when Jesus spoke about the ultimate in life, he actually put it like this. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it and then goes on to speak more about it. And uh, well, I was going to put something on the screen. It doesn't seem to be working, so never mind. Well, we don't need that. But So we need to be careful for the very thing that we're actually looking for. What is it that we're actually looking for? And the first thing to notice is that Jesus describes it as a man seeking. A man seeking. who A person who wants to save his life. It says in verse 35, here's a man who wants to save his life in that little reading. He doesn't want his life to be wasted. He doesn't want his life to be of no value at all. He wants it to be saved. He doesn't want it to be irrelevant. He wants it to be useful. He doesn't want it to be unsatisfied. He wants his life to be truly, richly fulfilled. I mean, there's a man in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, his name was. And King Solomon wrote that God has set eternity in man's hearts. Now, what did he mean? Well, just as any man knows, that there is an unsatisfied void in the heart of man. Something within us recognizes that what we see and touch and handle is not all that there is. And that's why men long for something else. They seek something else. They know that there must be something. They're not sure what it is, but they they want something else. It's because God has set eternity in his heart. Now, there is a sense in which that longing never completely goes away. Never. In this life, never completely goes away. I mean, the Apostle Paul speaks speaks of it, and he talks about it as groaning, longing to be at home. That's how he describes it. We groan inwardly, he says in Romans eight twenty-three. But what he's saying is that it's, it's almost as if your eyes are opened and you begin to realize that there is something. And you can reach out to that something. You can begin to taste that thing. You don't have it fully and completely yet, but at least you know that there is something out there that, that, uh, and you've set out on the pathway. Your eyes are opened. You've set a feet on the pathway. You've, begu- uh, life has begun. It's a taste of what is to come. It's at that moment you realize that there is an answer. There is something that completely satisfies, is the fulfillment of life, and it makes sense of life, what it's all about. And in that sense, the search has been satisfied, though you as yet do not have the complete answer. You've begun to realize that there is an answer. I mean, have you ever been on a... a out for a walk, for example. I don't know whether you have, do hiking or anything like that. And you go into some woods or other and so on, and you're walking along, and suddenly you realize you don't know quite where you are. And you turn this way, and you go down that path. which Is that the one we came down? And but No, it doesn't seem very familiar. And you go down that one, it doesn't seem right, and so on. before very long, you're beginning to panic. And think, I'm lost. And you look this way, and it gets more panicky, and so on. And uh, you don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. But then you turn a corner, and you suddenly notice. Oh, that's where it is and something you recognize and that sense of panic disappears you haven't reached your destination yet but the sense of peace that comes over it because you know where you're going same when you're driving a car You know, I remember when I was a, a, a teenager I suppose um, I lived at South End and South End the sea goes out a, just about a mile and a half and um, We used to do a lot of swimming in the sea and our youth group that I belonged to went for a swim and so on. All of us were out. We went out while the sea was out. The tide was out. We'd done it many times. While the tide was out, we swimming in the sea and then the tide came in again. Which was fine. We just swam in with the tide. Except that one of the people in that youth group couldn't swim that well. Her name was Janet. And uh, I had... I can keep going. I'm not a very good uh, fast swimmer. I can keep going forever, but I'm just not very fast. But so I thought, well, I, I'll stay and I'll help Janet to get there. And she was going and swimming and so on. And, and then she started grabbing hold of me. And uh, I didn't know you tried sw- swimming with somebody grabbing hold of you. It's it's pretty dangerous. Anyway, we couldn't reach, the, 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 the we couldn't put our feet on the ground and so on. And the others had all gone. They were getting back with the tide and so on. And there came a time when it, it was I, I was beginning to panic she was panicking and I was beginning to panic not because I didn't think I could make it because I didn't know whether I could make it with her hanging on to me and it was a pretty panicky situation but we kept going and kept going and getting more and more panicky about this when suddenly I put my feet down and I touched the ground and the sense of relief that came over you when that sort of thing happens it's not that you're already out and everything's put right, but at least you know you can you fetch your feet on some Pathway. Now Jesus describes the person here who's looking for life. He said he's a person who wants to save his life. This is how he puts it. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Somebody wanting to save their life. Now where does Jesus say that this man might be in danger of turning to to save his life? He mentions several things. Let me mention them just in passing. Rationalism. That is my self-centered understanding. I think my way through the problems and difficulties. I'll sort it out by rational thinking. This is how Jesus put it in verse 31. He spoke about his death and his resurrection and the cross he was going to, and Peter immediately said, that's nonsense. I I shan't let that happen to you. doesn't make sense. Now, he was a Jew, And being a Jew, he thought that anybody who dies on a cross is under God's curse. So as soon as Jesus began to say he was going to die on a cross, Peter immediately said, that's nonsense. What he was doing was applying his thinking, his religious upbringing, his rationalism to what Jesus was saying. He was putting his mind, his understanding, above what Jesus said. And so Jesus said to him in verse 33, Peter, you do not have the mind of God, but your mind is set on the things of men. Rationalism. When there are some people who think that what they think is will be the source of satisfaction. Then there's wealth for some people as a sort of satisfaction. This is what Jesus said in verse 36. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Uh, I mentioned the Titanic just now. And uh, last May 2012, last May, a court case was settled. And it was settled for the grandson of one of the people that was on the Titanic. And it was settled because he died and his wealth needed to be distributed and it was disputed and so on. And the person who was on the Titanic, his grandfather, was a man by the name of John Astor. John Astor was almost certainly the richest man in the world at that time, the time of the Titanic. Not quite sure of that because it was pre-income tax. So how do you tell if anybody's rich? There's no um, record of it. But he was probably the richest man in the world. John Astor, at the time the Titanic hit an iceberg, the iceberg, he was in the gymnasium on the boat deck talking to his wife. And actually, he'd taken a penknife out of his pocket and was cutting open a life belt to show his wife what was in it. And, you know, he, after all, he was wealthy enough. I can cut these things up. Anyway, he did that. He was cutting this up. And it hit the, um, the iceberg. At 1.45 in the morning, he went up onto the deck to find a lifeboat for his wife. That was thirty-five minutes before the ship sank, and he helped his wife get into a lifeboat. She was pregnant, and he helped her into lifeboat number four. He tried to get in it to himself, but he was refused access to it because they were only taking women and children in the lifeboat. At that time, he was worth a hundred and fifty million, approximately five billion today, and he discovered that. All of his wealth meant absolutely nothing that night. Nothing. When his body was later recovered, he drowned. When his body was later recovered, he was found to have $2,500 in his pocket. It meant nothing at that point. And even his understanding and examination of the source of security, so he thought, the life belt, cutting it open, examining it and turning it this way and that, showing his wife what was in it, meant nothing. Nothing. Jesus puts it like this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust cause it to disappear. You need to lay up treasure in heaven where none of these things destroy. So wealth. Rationalism, wealth. Thirdly, popularity. Popularity. Some people say, well, if I was popular, I'd be satisfied. If everybody, you know, that's what the many young people today are chasing, fame. That's why they go on X-Factor and all the rest, chasing fame. Popularity will be the source of satisfaction. Here, Jesus puts it negatively, and he puts it like this. If you're going to be ashamed of me and of my words, then I'll be ashamed of you. If you put popularity before your friends, above your commitment to me, you're in danger of losing everything. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher, was writing and thinking about these things in the 17th century. And um, he wrote what has been described ever since as Pascal's wager, Pascal's bet, gamble. And put in its simplest as this, in thinking about commitment to Jesus and his words, he say, says, people say it's nonsense to commit yourself to Jesus. But if I do take that step of commitment and I'm wrong, I've lost nothing. But if I take that step of commitment to Jesus and I'm right, then I've gained everything. And, he, uh, you know, Psalm 103, verse 5 says, He satisfies, the desire, uh, satisfies your desire with good things. So Paul says, that's why you should set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Or Jesus put it like this, Seek first the kingdom of heaven, and then everything else will be added to you now that leaves just one question why consider Jesus when looking for the ultimate goal in life because he stands astride both this life and the next to come well, who is Jesus talking about he's talking about those who want to save their lives and uh, how might people react in trying to save their lives they may turn to rationalism or to wealth or to popularity So the last question we need to discuss is what does it mean to commit yourself to Jesus Christ, to receive this ultimate satisfaction, to know, assurance? What do we need to do? Well, Jesus made it very clear. Three things. He says this. If anyone would come after me, he must, one, deny himself, two, take up his cross, and three, follow me. First of all, he must deny himself. That's not to say telling yourself that you're useless and worthless and, 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 and no good at all, you're horrible. It simply means saying no to yourself. It means recognizing that you don't have what it takes to find these things and to be the person that you want to be. To recognize that you are a failure in many ways. It's um, what we would refer to as recognizing that you have a sinful life. And your capacity to rationalize these things is really... No good at all. And so you need to deny yourself. Or in the words of an old, old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring. That's what you say to Jesus. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. So the first thing is, deny yourself. The second thing is, take up his cross. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. So the second thing is, take up his cross. Now that's in two parts. It means, first of all, seeing Jesus and what the cross means, what it is all about. When Jesus began to explain it here, Peter said, oh, I won't let that happen to you. Because as I've already said, he was rationalizing from his own background, his own understanding. And Jesus said, that's not good enough. So recognizing what Jesus was doing on the cross, the fact that when he was put on the cross, God was placing upon him all those things that we have done that separate us from God. And his death on the cross dealt with those things, recognizing what Jesus did. He died to take away sin, says the Bible, whether we like the word sin or not. So that's the first thing. The second thing is realizing that just as Jesus died, I too need to surrender myself to him. Of course, our death and his death are a thousand miles apart, But it means that to take up the cross is recognizing that I surrender myself to him. So the first thing is I deny myself, recognize that my thinking, my understanding, my rationalization is not sufficient. What I think should be done, what I think is a good idea, I must die to those things. Secondly, I commit myself to what Jesus has done in his dying on the cross. And the third thing is anybody would come after me let him deny himself take up the cross and follow me follow me a day by day walking in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus till you listen to him you speak like him you act like him you behave like him you serve him he said that's what following me is all about Actually, if you look in the Bible, there are several places where it talks about following him, and it's in several different ways. I mean, the the word follow there is used in lots of ways in the language in which Jesus and the disciples spoke, the Greek language. It means, well, a soldier going into battle. A soldier going into battle says to his men, follow me! We're entering a battle when we become a Christian. The second thing is, it's, it's like a teacher A teacher writing on the blackboard says to his students, you're going through some mathematics equation or something, you're going through it and you say, do you follow me? We learn from him. And thirdly, on a route march, from one place to another, the one in front says, follow me, and leads the way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So when you become a Christian, you say no to self, recognize what Jesus has done for you on the cross, and you say, I will commit my life to him in following him. It's a battle. There's much to learn. But we're on a pathway in which we state one step after another, following the one who says, I am the way. C.S. Lewis gathers all this up, and we we'll are finish here. He gathers all this up very well in one of his writings, writing called The Case for Christianity. <clears throat> and he says this, When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade this earth in force. But what is the good of saying that you're on his side, and then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream, and something else, something that has never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time will be when God, without disguise, invades, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It'll be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it becomes impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we've realized it before or not. Now today, at this moment, is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance, but it will not last forever. We must take it, or we must leave it. Whoever wants to save his life, at you? If so, are you one who's saying I'll save it by my own rational thinking? Or by what I possess that makes me feel good? Or by the uh, thousand and one things that creep in that make us feel good and make us feel wealthy? Or will it be, well if I was really popular and everybody was Thought I was the center of every situation and party. I'd feel really good. That'll satisfy. Or in recognizing that those things are not the way forward, are you saying, Jesus, you said, What good will it be for me to gain the whole world and lose my own soul? I want to know you. I want to trust you. I want to receive that from you without which I will be dissatisfied. If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his Father's glory and the holy angels. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow him. Let's pray together. Father, these are straight words from Jesus to us. And we want to not only hear what they say, but we want the help of your spirit to be obedient to them. Help us, we pray, to turn from ourselves to Jesus and follow him. Thank you that you died for us so that we might receive yourself and receive your grace. Help us, we pray, to so sense a sense of need that we long for you with all our hearts for you said you will find if you seek me with all your heart so lord help us to respond to you we pray in Jesus name, Amen
1: the top of an Olympic podium is in many ways the ultimate destination in sport it's a dream of millions the privilege of just a tiny few but it begs a question what is winning gold actually like. You
2: imagine life is going to be changed. Uh, You're going to be hugely rich and famous and, you know, full stop. I always felt cheated. It just is. Of course it is. Everyone imagines that it is.
3: I didn't sleep for weeks. Weeks.
1: And actually it isn't. Perhaps we do mythologize what it is to win gold. We often suppose that getting to the top of a podium is like a fairy tale, and that the champion's going to live happily ever after. But is human psychology quite so simple?
3: I remember being chauffeured back in the bus to the Athletes' Village from doing all my press conferences and sitting there thinking, what are you going to do now? (laughs) What? You've done it, what are you going to do now? And, and that feeling alone made me really kind of a bit depressed, actually.
2: Well, fantastic, we've won, but like, okay, well, the whole world is moving on. There's another event coming and okay, we have to go now. And like, it was a sort of, you know, you make no plans after your event finishes.
1: For many sports people, winning gold is not just an occupational ambition, it's an all-encompassing motivation. Coaches demand nothing less. But if you've won a gold medal, if you've achieved your purpose, what next? Is it any wonder so many gold medal winners feel an overpowering sense of emptiness? Their entire life is wrapped up with getting this one thing and they believe this is gonna be the answer. Once I've got this one thing, I'll be satisfied. Uh, and I think they need to get there. For the lucky ones, they get there and find out that it isn't. And then they get looking in the real, the right places to find satisfaction and, and happiness um, because I don't think it's wrapped up in a gold medal. It doesn't mean
3: that all other aspects of your life are now set and that you're never going to have another problem in life. It doesn't work that way. It's kind of odd for me, having lost my faith, to quote the Bible. But in Proverbs it says, without a vision, the people perish. And I think if you don't have something to lead you on, then there's nowhere to go. The journey finishes, and that's why you feel empty.
2: Three hours after we'd raced, I ended up back in the Olympic Village, sat on the end of my bed with my Olympic gold medal in my hand, and thought, that's it, I've done it. And winning is undeniably and publicly a sort of highlight. It's as high as you can go in almost any Olympic sport, certainly our sport well, everything else is going to be down compared to that.
1: A sense of anti-climax is not exclusive to sport, of course. Winners of the National Lottery have talked about extreme lows after the initial high. And perhaps this isn't such a bad thing. Maybe a lull, emotional or otherwise, helps to set somebody up for the next challenge, the next summit. And maybe this explains the relentless ambition of so many great sports people that they go for their next gold medal so soon after winning the last one.
2: I think if, if you were euphoric forever having won, it'd be like only having filet mignon to eat. You know, like you pick your perfect meal, uh, but then actually it's a bit of a curse to have that every meal for the rest of your life. You know, you actually like the contrast.
3: There's not a set way to react emotionally to any victory or defeat. We all respond differently. If athletes were to think about forcing their emotions, i.e., I feel numb, I should feel euphoric, then that thought is the problem. Accept how you feel at that moment, because that's okay. If you've never achieved that great level of success, then how will you know how you feel? How will you know how you're meant to feel?
1: At one level, it is rather obvious that a gold medal is not a panacea for life itself. Just because an athlete is fantastic at sport doesn't mean they're gonna have all the answers for the challenges that lie beyond the field of play. I can't imagine and never in my life that I won't
3: have just a little bit of a smile and a good feeling when I think about that moment that I won Olympic gold medals. But does that make everything else in my life perfect? Absolutely not.
1: Many great sportsmen, many of the greatest of all, reflect with great pride on having ascended the top of an Olympic podium. But many others have expectations of a gold medal that simply cannot be met. If this wasn't the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, what is?